1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion, sit back and relax while we engineer weird and wonderful science directly into your genome. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Deborah Monigo explores the new properties of nanoparticles. First up, here's news of CRISPR baby scares. By Twitter. Remember the Chinese babies genetically engineered with the CRISPR-Cas9 tool to be protected from AIDS? By Zhonghui He. Broadcast around the world through 112 news outlets this last week was the headline that the CRISPR babies were more likely to die young, with the editorial that this was a lesson in things humans are not meant to meddle with. The news stories, repeated on TV, radio, newspaper and magazine, were based on a paper published in the prestigious scientific journal Nature Medicine by two researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, Xinju Wei and Rasmus Nielsen. The two researchers calculated that people with the CCR5 mutation that protects against HIV have a 21.5% higher chance of dying young after they surveyed over 400,000 medical records of white British people with the mutation. The paper passed traditional peer review and was published. The paper concluded, It underscores the idea that introduction of new or derived mutations in humans using CRISPR technology or other methods for genetic engineering comes with considerable risk, even if the mutations provide a perceived advantage. In this case... The cost of resistance to HIV may be increased susceptibility to other, and perhaps more common, diseases. The news outlets ran with it. The CRISPR babies are more likely to die young. Geneticists on Twitter beg to differ. Instead of the hot take notorious on social media like Twitter, where people debate based on the first thing they think of and how they imagine the facts to be, these scientists actually did their own full analysis and then presented their reviews on Twitter threads. And the original researchers responded on Twitter. First on Twitter was Cecile Janssens. Cecile Janssens is a research professor of translational epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology of the Rowland School of Public Health at Emory University in the US. She tweeted... I wanted to comment on the new paper about the increased mortality of the CCR5 mutations, but the paper is too confusing, with essential data unreported. Let me just share what I don't get. The authors determine an increased 21.5% chance of early death, where Cecile Janssen calculated only 3.5%, much less. Cecile then tweeted, What I do get is that the relevant information was missing. How many people died in the study population? How many in each genotype group? I want confidence bands in the plot and population size at each age below. The confidence intervals in the supplementary tables are huge! The confidence bands and confidence intervals show how much error there is in the data. Huge confidence bands mean a huge amount of errors, which means less confidence in the conclusions. Professor Janssen concluded with, I hope someone with expertise in survival analysis can help clarify the table and figure and interpret the results. Thanks. Dr. Sean Harrison took up the challenge. Sean Harrison is a postdoctoral researcher in the UK Medical Research Council Integrative Epidemiology Unit at the University of Bristol. He tweeted a thread. I also had some issues with this paper, so I did the same analysis my way last night. The biggest problem I can see is the sample. They don't account for relatedness, and it likely biases the analysis. They don't appear to do any of the quality control on the participants we do on UK Biobank data at the University of Bristol. The analysis also has problems. I can't comment on the choice of SMP, but let's assume it's appropriate. The SMP is which gene mutation is being studied. More than one naturally occurring mutation in the CCR5 gene gives protection against infection by HIV-AIDS. Sean's thread continued, The survival curve should have confidence intervals, but it should also have been adjusted for potential confounders. Age, sex, centre and all principal components. They didn't take out related individuals like in all other genetic analysis I've seen. Anyway, I redid this analysis, restricting to an appropriate set of participants, White, British, unrelated, quality controlled. The study number went from 409,000 in their sample to 337,000 in mine. All I did was take those 337,000 participants, grab their LL count for RS113, sex, age, principal components, centre and dates of registration and death, taking the last date of death As the final data follow-up and put everything into a Cox regression in Starter. Starter is a statistical software package. Sean continued, I found 9,714 deaths, 2.9%, and 4,736 participants, 1.4%, were homozygous for the mutant allele in RS113. The homozygous people are the ones with two copies of the mutant gene, which gives them protection from HIV, but also allows them to suffer any harmful effects because they don't have backup of the non-mutated gene. Heterozygous people only have one copy of the mutant gene and they don't have protection from HIV. Sean continued, So why did I find a small effect with wider confidence intervals? Several reasons come to mind. The first is that there were no confidence intervals reported in the study. The second is I have no idea what method they used to calculate the effect estimate. The third is their sample was likely biased by the participant selection, possibly not quality controlling the participants, and/or including related participants. Even so, it seems clear to me that deaths are rare, being homozygous for the mutant LL is rare. Confidence around survival of people with homozygous RS113 is low because of these two factors. I would also like to note that no paper in 2019 should be published without confidence around point estimates. This is ridiculous nature medicine. Peer review editing seems slapdash in other ways, though. How did the survival graph get through peer review? There are no confidence intervals and age hasn't been defined. On this note, the minimum age in UK Biobank at recruitment is 39 in white British non-related, and the max age is 73. So how did they get the range, 41 to 78? That can't come from the same time point. Their methods are very difficult to follow. It took me ages to work out they measured RS113, not RS626. What did they adjust for in the analysis? Why do I need to go to the supplementary information to find out really basic details? What was the proportional number of people who are homozygous for the allele? Overall, I'm not a fan of the paper. But I think a chunk of that is I don't believe Nature Medicine properly reviewed the paper. Basic things we do with genetic data weren't done. There's massive gaps in the methods, and it still gets through peer review. How? Sean notes that there is a project notebook online linked in the supplementary notes, but it's on a private site, so it can be removed and altered at any time, and he doesn't know which data from the notebook was used in the main text. He goes on to say the discrepancy between our findings could be down to sample selection, relatedness, and or quality control, adjustment for age sex centre. Later, One of the paper authors, Rasmus Nielsen, reports in a thread to Sean Harrison. Dear Sean, we have carefully considered your comments on Twitter and worked to reconcile your analyses with ours. The main difference stems from the following. We are analysing different markers. We used RS113 as an additional validation. But all the analyses in the paper are based on RS626, which should be the correct marker to use. I'm sorry if this is not apparent from the wording in the manuscript. I should also, in all fairness, that we have misled Sean Harrison with a sentence in the manuscript claiming that results are similar for the SMP he is looking at. As he has demonstrated, this is clearly not the case. Thanks, Sean Harrison, for pointing this out. Rasmus Nielsen later tweeted, I feel obligated to have to comment on the many news stories arguing that the CRISPR babies will likely die young as an interpretation of our study. This interpretation is not valid or responsible. First, the effect size we estimate is not nearly strong enough to warrant such a conclusion. Also, the confidence intervals are very large. I have had a hard time getting the latter point out in the press stories. Secondly, you cannot transfer the effects we see in the UK Biobank to people in China because of differences in environment and genetic background. Thirdly, as far as we know, one of the individuals is heterozygous and none of them have the exact Delta 32 mutation, but instead have other mutations aimed at mimicking the effect of Delta 32. The paper was titled, CCR5 Delta 32 is deleterious in the homozygous state in humans, and was published in Nature Medicine. Are the CRISPR babies at an advantage or disadvantage with the engineered CCR5 gene with deletions? Only time will tell. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Nanoparticles. Deborah Monigo is a PhD student in the School of Chemistry at the University of Sydney. She's been studying the way nanoparticles interact with each other for the past three years. This is the final year of her PhD. I sat with Deborah in Victoria Park and began by asking her what aspect of nanoparticles is she studying?
2: I am looking at how nanoparticles interact with one another in solution.
1: And what is a nanoparticle?
2: A nanoparticle is a type of nanomaterial. A nanomaterial is any material that has one of their dimensions of the size of 1 to 100 nanometers. That's a billionth of a meter, which is very, very small. It's even hard to imagine. So, for example, if you make a nanoparticle the size of a football, the football would be the size of the earth. So that's the sort of dimensions we're talking about. So you can have nanomaterials that have one of their dimensions of those sort of size, such as wires, where you have very narrow wires, but very long, or even viruses, proteins. And what I work with is particles that have sort of all of their dimensions in that scale. So they are almost like spherical particles with nanodimensions
1: when you get things down that small, do they have the same properties as if they were normal size?
2: That's a very good question, and the answer is no. And the reason why is because when you get things so small, the amount of atoms that are on the surface of the particles, it's not irrelevant anymore, as we have for things that we're used to at the micro scale. So, for example, if you have a one nanometer nanoparticle, about 100% of their atoms are going to be in the, on the surface. But if you have a 10 nanometers particle, about 10% of their atoms will be at the surface. So that changes a lot, just with a little change in the size. And, and then the surface effects start to play a very important role on the properties of the particles. So you can get very different particles, not only going from the macro scale to the nanoscale, but also by changing just a little bit the size of the particles at the nanoscale.
1: How do you study the nanoparticles?
2: It's relatively easy for us now to, to make these particles, especially when they are spherical or this sort of nearly spherical shapes. So the synthesis is very well advanced, which means we can make them in different sizes and shapes and materials. So that's experimentally a very good thing, because then you can explore all these sort of different systems. But at the same time, they are very small. So we actually don't have very very good tools to look at them right now so we have very very good microscopes which we can use to sample the particles especially when they have a hard core but they also have this what we call soft layer around them and the problem with that is that that's very similar to the size of those soft and hard layers are very similar to each other so it's very hard to look at where one ends and the other starts experimentally. So the way I deal with that is by using computer simulations. So I use parameters that were developed through experiments or other atomistic level simulations. And I use that to replicate these systems in my computer. And then study the dynamics of this system. So basically just using the Newton's equations of movement to give a little kick to the system at the start and then by iterating it over itself, so I just give it a force to start with, and then generate new positions, and with those positions I calculate new force, and so on, until it forgets the state it was at the start. And by doing that, I'm able to, when when the system equilibrates and it kind of forgets where I put it, I can sort of calculate properties that are expected to be the properties of the real system. By doing that, I can sample each of these individual components of nanoparticles individually and with a very good control. So I can change the size of the particle, I can change the size of the solvent that is surrounding the particle and I can see how each of those things affect the system.
1: And what sort of materials are you using for these nanoparticles?
2: So my research is quite fundamental. So I'm looking at the properties in a general way and how we could design particles in a more general way. So I'm looking for rules of design of particles if you want these structures you're building to have specific properties. At the moment I am looking at gold nanoparticles because gold is We work in collaboration with the experimentalists and gold is readily available in large quantities. And it's a system that has been studied for long and we know the properties already. So it's very easy to deal with it experimentally. So I work with that, but we've we've done simulations to with other materials so gold is like a metallic core we've done simulations with a semiconducting core and we see the same trends so we don't think they are necessarily related to the material itself so much of the core because we're looking at watching properties and what defines that is sort of the ligands that are around the particles that's the focus of our research
1: and what's a ligand
2: that's a very good question so because of the large quantity of atoms on the surface of these particles, they are very reactive and they're very unstable. So imagine if you put a bunch of particles of gold in a liquid, they will prefer to stay stick together instead of being around the liquid. But we don't want that because then it's, we just end up with a macro particle of gold instead of individual nanoparticles and uh, we can't really choose how they will form the structures if they just form other things by themselves. So we want to keep them stable in solution so you can deal with it properly later. To do that scientists have developed this technology where you add sort of polymers or other molecules to the surface of these particles and that not only stabilizes them by Reducing their surface energy, but also these particles repel each other entropically, not allowing the particles to get too close together and coalesce in this sort of random structures. So, these are the ligands I'm talking about, and they are usually put there to then provide repulsion between the particles. But they can also be used to confer specific properties. For example, if you want some sort of lock key property. You can have specific ligands that will only bind or interact with other ligands in another particle. So they're very useful and it's very nice that we can also experimentally, we have a good control of how to functionalize these particles with these ligands.
1: And what sort of properties are you finding they have?
2: So it's very exciting. So one of the things we've, we knew already about these ligands is that they do not always do what they are expected to do. So as I said, they are expected to repel each other and then keep the particles apart. But if you have low enough temperatures, they will actually not be in a very random state. So it's like they freeze on top of the particles. And instead of being all around like a liquid, they will be very well structured and they will align to each other like in a solid, like in a crystal. And then they form these uh, sort of regions on top of the particles. And they do not move around anymore, so they can't repel each other. Instead, they will attract ligands that are also aligned on the other particle. So it switches the interaction from what we wanted at the start from repulsive to attractive. And that might seem like a not very good thing because we say, oh, well, we added them there in the first place to keep them apart. And now they're driving them together. But we can actually use that to get specific separations between the particles when they do come together and one of the things that we want is that we do not need necessarily to drive this agglomeration of the particles so we don't have to do that by ourselves we can just use the natural interactions between the particles so they do that themselves that's called self-assembly of course you can't build large things with that yet like we can't just put Uh, particles there and expect a mobile phone to come out, but we can definitely build patterns that we can use in a ship or something like that. We found that depending on the size of the particles, so if the particles are small enough, we will get this sort of behavior with the ligands, and that will be actually what drives their agglomeration so by controlling the type of the ligand we put on the surface of these particles or the length of these ligands we can get different structures at the end so it's a small step but we at least now understand a little bit of how this happens on the other hand if the particles are a little bit larger then their cores are going to be so attractive that the ligands won't do that so it's sort of like also a way to separate those particles if you want because you could get different temperatures and then you could get the particles that are small or the particles that are large to come together before the particles that are not or something like that. So we're finding very exciting results and yeah, it's, it's very nice.
1: So you're discovering all these different types of properties of these materials under different circumstances so that in the future you and other people will be able to use them as building blocks to design whole new devices and structures and things?
2: Yeah, that's the idea. So, of course nanoparticles are being used for that already, but the manufacturing of these devices is extremely complicated and it's not scalable because we can do that in a beaker in our laboratory, but then if you want to go to transfer that to a macro scale then it becomes completely a different problem because you won't mix them the same way, you won't have the same number of particles. So while we still don't do not understand how these particles interact with each other, we cannot really expect them to self-assemble in a rational way because it's just going to be a an trial and error sort of process, which is obviously takes time and it doesn't always come out as you expect. So, the idea is to have this better understanding so we can use that knowledge to kind of decide what the particle is going to look like based on the product we want.
1: What got you interested in this area?
2: So I have a physics and chemistry background, and I'm, I was always interested on looking at these sort of weird side of things. And there's nothing more weird than nanoparticles because they do not behave as atoms, but they also do not behave as microscale particles. So there's sort of that middle ground, middle place in there that nobody really understands, and they have completely different properties. And it's not only about what gets me more excited, it's not only the properties that they have, that we're looking for and we want to achieve, but also properties that we might not even know, not be aware of that they might have, and could be applied to things that we need solution, but we don't have idea of how to do it. So I think it's a very exciting field, and of course, the. Nano word has been used. It's been like this super hype word, But it's something that we do not really have a good understanding of. And I think that's very exciting to study something at this stage where you're still trying to figure out what happens if you do certain things to the system.
1: If high school students wanted to study nanoparticles, what should they do?
2: Again it's very exciting I imagine for high school students to work with nanoparticles and a boomer is you can't really see them so they won't have that exciting chemistry going on but at the same time you can see their properties and that signals that they are there and they are doing things that you wouldn't expect so for example you can have solutions of several different colors by changing the the size of cadmium selenide particles from 1 to 10 nanometers, which is like all of them are pretty small and you can imagine how you could see them or things like that. But if you put them in a solution, you will see purple, red, green, blue. You will see all these different colors, which could spark the interest of these students learning more about nanoparticles. Of course, I think, as we're still trying to figure out how they work, it's very important that they get good knowledge of physics and chemistry, which is what obviously we used to try to understand that. There are many applications that are also already out there for nanoparticles, even in cosmetics or pharmacs. So it's very important that People are aware of that, and if they can at least study a little bit about the properties, they can understand what they're consuming, and yeah, I think that's very important.
1: Well, Deborah Monego, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
1: That was Deborah Monego, PhD student at the University of Sydney's School of Chemistry, studying new properties in nanoparticles that will one day be used to make new materials for engineering. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Do you have a science outreach grant you should tell me to apply for? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com That's science at diffusionradio.com please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast, on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolfe. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: Science is fun.